listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Our text for this morning's message comes from 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 14. I'll invite you to rise for the reading of God's Word. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. When he heard this, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that we can come before you in all confidence, knowing that your Holy Spirit will be at work through your word to convict us of our sin and to point us toward Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you speak to our hearts this morning? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. 
Today we're continuing our Broken Heroes series by taking a look at Naaman. And we're using Naaman, this unlikely character, a Syrian general of all people. Not an Israelite, not a, a believer that we know of. Someone that God chose to love and use despite his shortcomings. Naaman struggled with pride, big time. He really thought that he was something, and actually for good reason. His resume was pretty impressive. When you read through it in those first couple verses there, it's, it's pretty clear that this guy was really something in the land. Top general of a major world army. Check, right? A great man in high favor with the king. Check. A warrior with an impeccable battle record. Check. And here's the really crazy part. All of this was because of God's doing. Like, he wasn't an Israelite, and yet we see God working through a non-Israelite in his life to orchestrate all of his plans and to bring them about. So he even had God in his corner. He had the power, the accolades, the fame, every earthly reason to, to wake up in the morning and to look in the mirror and be like, man, this guy's he's some hot stuff. Except for one thing, Naaman had leprosy. Now, leprosy is a general term used in the Bible to describe a variety of, of skin conditions. So it could be something as, as small as eczema, or it could be something more, more major than that. Today, there's a, an actual disease called leprosy. That's a very serious thing. That's not what's being referred to here. But in Naaman's case, it was pretty serious, enough so that he was in deep distress. And his servant, who was this Israelite captive, she, she noticed this. Her, her master was in distress, and she says, well... You know, there's this prophet over in Israel where I come from named Elisha, and he's gonna, he'll be able to heal you. So why don't you go and visit, visit him? So Naaman goes first to the king of Syria, his king, and, and he requests his help. And uh, he asks him to, he, he sends a letter. The king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel requesting his help to cure Naaman. And, and when he receives this letter, when the king of Israel uh, receives this letter, he kind of freaks out. He, he sort of thinks, well, well, this is going to be, um, this is like he, he's trying to, to trap me into going to war or something. I'm not going to be able, I don't have the power to, to heal. I'm not God, so this is not going to be good. Um, But he says, okay, well, there's this other pro guy, this, is this prophet, and, and Elisha, Elisha hears about it. He calls on the king, tells him to send Naaman directly to him. So Naaman pulls into the prophet's driveway. You can picture this. He pulls into the prophet's driveway with his whole entourage, and he is rolling deep today. He brought the whole posse. He's got chariots and horses and servants, and who knows, maybe even secret servicemen. Everything that screams that someone successful and important and valuable has arrived. Roll out the red carpet because Naaman is in the building. And he didn't come empty-handed either. Verse 5 tells us that he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and in 10 changes of clothing. This wasn't normal, a normal amount anyway. This is, in fact... Get this, it was equivalent to about three-quarters of a billion dollars in today's standards. It's more than just a, a gift, a welcoming gift. What's Naaman trying to do? He's trying to purchase a miracle, isn't he? He thinks a miracle is for sale. 
I pay a certain amount of money, and in return, I get the cure, right? He has a transactional mindset about God's love. I have to contribute something in order to receive God's blessing. After all, that's how the rest of the world works. That's how all the gods in Syria work, and that's how they, they operate. So why should Israel's God be any different? So Naaman rolls up to 110 North Prophet Avenue in his brand new 66 chariot. I'm extrapolating a little bit here. And he rings the doorbell. But Elisha doesn't answer. Instead, he sends a servant with this message. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. And you shall be clean. And what's Naaman's reaction to this? Does he rejoice? Is he happy that there's a cure? Naaman gets angry, doesn't he? He gets mad. He's, he's furious, actually. First off, he's insulted that this measly little backwater prophet won't even give him the time of day and sends a servant out to greet him. And secondly, you have to understand something about the Jordan River. It's kind of like a, a muddy little creek in certain places throughout much of its length. And so he thinks, you know, I, I came from Syria, and man, we've got some crystal clear, clear rivers there. What's wrong with them? Why can't I go and, and bathe in these rivers of my own? Instead, you're, you're, you're telling me to, to bathe in this muddy little creek? What is Elisha thinking? And what's more, he's not even going to wave his hands in the air to make him better like, like all of his priests back home would have done. Instead, he's supposed to take a, a bath? This is ridiculous. He's got too much going for him to debase himself in this way. Naaman struggled with pride, didn't he? It turned out that his leprosy was more than skin deep. It affected his heart too. Ephraim the Syrian, who's a 4th century Christian devotional writer, put it like this. And I think this is a helpful way to frame it. He says, sin is the leprosy of the soul. And Naaman was sick with it. His skin disease was just a symptom of a deeper spiritual affliction. Because of his pride, Naaman thought he could contribute something toward his healing. The one thing he refused to accept was that he was helpless, a sinner dead on arrival in desperate need of healing. Not just healing, though, resurrection. See, Naaman's problem wasn't that he was sick. His problem is that he wasn't dead, spiritually speaking. What do I mean by that? He, a spiritual corpse, insisted he could contribute something toward his own resurrection. He refused to accept the truth that his spiritual condition was as dire as it was, and that he needed something more than his own resources could supply. He refused to see himself as someone dead. He would sooner choke than swallow his pride. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about pride, and I think this is a great way to, to understand it. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. Now, to some of us, this might sound a little extreme, right? I mean, seriously, is spiritual pride that bad? Anti-God? But if you stop to think about it, he's driving at something undeniable here. Have you noticed this to be true in your own life? That the more independent you become, the more self-sufficient you become, the less you need to rely on others, right? The less dependent you need to be on anyone else. The same is true in the way that we approach our relationship with God, right? The, the more confidence we place in our own abilities, our own works, our own capacity to fix ourselves and conquer sin and beef up our own spiritual resumes, the less need we have for the cross. And the Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians that if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Right? If we could attain the cure that we need on our own, what need have we of Christ? And like Naaman, we roll up to God's house with all the confidence in the world, in our own accolades and a holier-than-thou look on our faces, confident that we're good Christians because we know God's Word better than those other Christians across the street, that we're faithful givers, that we've done a pretty good job, a bang-up job of loving our neighbors, and that God's going to reward us accordingly for our efforts. Sometimes we, we kind of think, man, I'm, I'm slaying it as a Christian. Or at least I did this last week. God's sure lucky to have me on His team. As I was preparing this week, what struck me most about the story was that he didn't want to bathe in the Jordan River, right? That was part of Naaman's deal. He was like, gross, disgusting, uh, I'd rather use my own rivers instead. Right? He wanted to go back to his homeland. Well, listen closely to what another early church father says about this, because I think it's really eye-opening. He says, the fact that Naaman believed he would recover his health as the result of his own rivers indicates that the human race presumed on its free will and its own merits. But without the grace of Christ, their own merits cannot possess health. In other words, thanks God, but I'll fix myself. Please and thank you. I have no need of grace. Naaman believed he could recover his health as a result of his own rivers, his own merits, his own abilities. So a, a question for us to consider and to reflect on is to ask, what are those rivers in my life? What are those rivers in my own heart? The, the things that I point to and say, this is why God accepts me. This is what I've done for Him lately. This is why I deserve His love. I think one of the reasons spiritual pride is so insidious is that it robs God of the credit. We'd like to take credit, don't we? 
Like, even if it's just 1%, like, give me a little something. Help me, help me to keep my foot in the door. Just a, a small fraction, and I'll be happy. Every cell in our bodies screams out for it. So growing up, I, uh, I had a pastor, and he, he, he did this thing. I don't know if you've noticed. Pastors do this sometimes. They tell the same stories like over and over again. Not this pastor, obviously. Other pastors do it. It's terrible. Uh, but he would tell the story over and over again, and each time I would get so ticked off when he told it. And here's basically what he would say. He said, look, this is how salvation works. You are like a helpless baby at the bottom of a set of stairs, right? And God is at the top of those stairs. And you need to get from where you are to the top of the stairs in order to be saved, okay? But here's the thing. You can't take one step toward God. Here's what salvation is. He comes down those stairs. He picks you up. He carries you. He does the saving. You don't contribute even a micro millimeter, my word's not his, toward your own salvation. And I remember as a kid, like racking my brain and thinking, what are you saying? Like, you won't give me even like one step toward God? Like, give me that at least. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate this story more and more because I realize how accurately it describes what the Bible teaches about God's love. It's one way. And by that, I don't mean we, res we don't respond to God's love. We do. We love because He first loved us. What I mean when I say that is that God's love always moves first. That's important. It originates in his heart. And it's not dependent upon our reciprocation. There's nothing particularly lovable about us that drew God to us. He is love by nature, and, and he freely chooses to love us, lost and helpless as we are, to forgive our sins 70 times 7 and beyond. And to give us the peace and rest and healing that our souls so desperately crave. But to receive it, we have to swallow our pride. As Pastor Tim Keller notes, he says, There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus requires us to do. So... We are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God Himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life. Thankfully, God's grace outstrips our pride, as we see in the story of Naaman. And Naaman listed all of these reasons why he wasn't going to listen to Elisha's 
instructions to go and bathe in the Jordan River, right? He, he has all these, like, I, I, I don't want to do that. It, it's dirty. There's better rivers back where I come from. But thankfully, Naaman had some good servants, and they told him this. And his servant said, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. God cleansed Naaman of his spiritual pride and cured him of his leprosy, bringing him to repentance. And here's something really fascinating. Do you know what the name Naaman actually means? It means gracious. Isn't that ironic? I don't think that that's by accident. Because Naaman learned firsthand that the God of Israel was gracious. That he gives what we don't deserve. And through the shed blood of His one and only Son, God makes us clean. He washes us in the Word. He washes us in the waters of baptism. He forgives us. He loves us and He sets us free. All through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who left heaven behind to take on the very nature of a servant, washing his disciples' feet, being baptized in the muck and mire of that same Jordan River with the rest of us, dying the death of a common criminal to cleanse us from the leprosy infecting our hearts. The opposite of pride is humility, and Jesus had it in spades. In Him we see this perfect suffering servant submitting Himself to the worst things imaginable, all because of His unfathomable love for us. There wasn't a prideful bone in His body. Jesus alone was able to swallow up pride. He swallowed it up all the way to the cross the grave and the empty tomb, so that it wouldn't have to rule in our hearts. So may you, dear Christian, may you find yourself trusting in the all-sufficient love of Jesus for you this morning, who left heaven behind to humbly serve you. And may we daily find ourselves at the foot of the cross, where pride goes to die. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.